Welcome to the SciMore Podcast, a science podcast made by students in Baltimore for the Baltimore community to answer your science questions. In today's episode, we'll be learning about the very popular COVID-19 dashboard, also known as the COVID map, that was created by Johns Hopkins University. Today's hosts are Emily Hahn and Michael Dreiser. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of the Simore podcast. Your hosts for today, Michael and I, are delighted to bring you a Johns Hopkins special. You may or may not have heard of the Johns Hopkins COVID-19 dashboard on the news. The dashboard, first shared publicly on January 22nd last year, illustrates the location and number of confirmed COVID-19 cases, deaths, and recoveries for all affected countries. At some point in the past year, every single news outlet seemed to be citing the dashboard created by the team right here in Baltimore. Even my grandparents overseas were telling me about it. And you may or may not have been looking at this huge but detailed map and wondering, how is this thing created? How does it keep updating COVID-19 information from all around the world and keeping sure it's accurate? And that's what we're going to get into today. For this episode, we are really grateful to have Dr. Amos Adalja with us on the show to talk about the COVID-19 dashboard, public health data management and reporting, biosecurity, and more. Dr. Adalja is an assistant professor with the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. He has served on multiple U.S. government panels and other working groups as an expert on emerging infectious diseases, pandemic preparedness, and biosecurity. I think he'd be a perfect person to tell us all about the coronavirus dashboard and biosecurity surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Adaja. Thank you for having me. I would love to start by asking you to tell us a little more about how you come to become an expert on infectious diseases. So when did your interest begin? My interest in infectious diseases probably traces back to being a child. Both my parents were doctors, and some of the children's books I read had to do with infectious diseases. So for a long time, my favorite book was a story about Louis Pasteur and the discovery of the rabies vaccine. It was a book called The Value of Believing in Yourself, and I was fascinated with that book at a young age. So infectious disease was something that I always thought about when I was in school. That was when the first days of the HIV pandemic began, and I remember being fascinated by this virus. But I didn't initially end up going to medical school. I went to college, double majoring in biology and and, uh, and finance, basically. And uh, I changed my mind a little bit after graduating that I really wanted to go back to medicine. And I knew that when I went back to medicine, I wanted to go into infectious disease because it was so interesting to me, all the detective work, all of the different facets of society that, that are at play during an infectious disease emergency. And so it's been a longstanding interest of mine. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Before we move on, I want to ask about your initial career focus and how you got to where you are today. Did you start in the field you currently work in or did you pursue that sometime later? No, I, I basically had the idea as soon as I entered medical school that I would work in infectious disease, specifically in the issue of pandemics and in biosecurity, bioterrorism preparedness. All of that was really fascinating to me, kind of the intersection of infectious disease and national security. So I went through medical school, went through residency and fellowship, and then started working at the Hopkins Center for Health Security. Back then, it was called something different and was affiliated with the University of Pittsburgh. And I started working with them while I was still training. And so my whole career has really been around this aspect of infectious disease. Okay, very cool. Thank you. 
All right. So before we talk about the Hopkins dashboard, we wanted to start by telling our listeners a bit more about COVID-19 statistics and their reliability. To have COVID-19 stats from all around the world in one place is a really impressive effort. For those of us who are not experts in public health, the stats can seem confusing. We wanted to give our listeners some insight into how these numbers are obtained and interpreted to make the whole process a bit more transparent. Could you tell us a little bit about the steps the state and federal governments take to get their COVID-19 case numbers? And how do we know if they're accurate and reliable? So what happens is states and counties and municipal governments will have certain infectious diseases that are reportable and COVID-19 is reportable disease. So when there is a positive lab test for COVID-19, that is then transmitted from the doctor's office, from the hospital, from wherever it might be to the health department. And that data is then collated and entered into a database. Because of that, it's a lot of it is kind of reactive in the way that it's actually reported, meaning that you get a positive result and then it's actually voluntary. Voluntary, sorry, so react is probably not the best word. So it's a kind of a voluntary reporting that ends up happening is that a health department gets whatever is submitted to them. And that's why there's sometimes lot lag where maybe there was a long weekend and some people don't submit that information on time, or there might be data dumps where they've held it for a while, then all of a sudden it comes at once. And that's sort of to be expected during a pandemic that you have this kind of ups and down in the data flow. In general, it's all really laboratory based, which is something that ensures its accuracy that these are positive test results that are that are getting sent to health departments and they collate all that information and they put it out every day. And it's important to remember that what you're seeing on a daily case count, those are the cases reported that day. Some of those cases may have occurred a couple of days before. So you have to expect that it's not always going to be real time. It's not a ticker like a, like the stock market where it's all happening right in front of your eyes. Some of it is a little bit lag. So it's imperfect, but it's the best we have. And I do think it does provide a good picture of what's going on at any given time, uh, depending upon what kind of uh, use you have for the data. Okay, I gotcha. One of the questions we got from our listeners was this. Are there ever difficult decisions that public health experts have to make in reporting COVID-19 data? Yeah, there's a, there, I think there are difficult decisions in terms of trying to understand, you know, does this person really have COVID-19? But that's what our diagnostic tests are for. So you have to report all positive test results. So that kind of takes out a lot of the decision-making process and all of that kind of gets forwarded out. You know, there may be times when you have to think, you know, is this positive test really a positive test or is it this person just got tested multiple times and they're not clearing the virus because we know that people can remain positive for a long time. So what do you do with that type of data? How do you treat those individuals who are persistently positive? That can be a difficult decision. It's not as if though that we are trying to, most of it is, is, is very black and white when you're looking at a positive test result and whether it needs to be reported. There, there are lots of hard decisions that public health experts have to make when they're trying to develop policies or trying to understand what's going on. But when it comes to reporting of cases, it's not so hard with COVID-19 because, of, because we've got diagnostic tests out there that kind of do a lot of the work for us. I guess there's also issues with early on in, in the pandemic, you would have people who I guess were like backlogged tested for COVID-19. Like when they first came into the hospital, that people thought they had the flu or some other um, respiratory disease. And then later they thought, okay, maybe that was a COVID-19 diagnosis. Do you know, can you talk a little bit about how that sort of information is input into the uh, global data? So early on, it was definitely the case that we couldn't diagnose everybody that we thought had COVID-19. And there is a lot of overlap between COVID-19 symptoms, other respiratory viruses like influenza. And surely during March and April and May, we missed a lot of cases because our testing was so flawed. We had very strict testing criteria. So some of those cases just escaped. They were never really ever counted. So the numbers that you look at, especially during the early months of the pandemic, are a major underestimate, basically the tip of the iceberg. 
So I don't think that we'll ever get those data back. It's more about trying to make models that understand what we think the total spread of the virus was in those early months. And they're looking at antibody tests to be able to try and do that and other ways of trying to quantify what was going on. So a lot of that data was probably, some of it might've been reported as probable cases, not confirmed cases, because if you didn't have the ability to test and somebody had symptoms that were identical to COVID-19, I think it was prudent to report those as probable cases because they met most of the criteria. It wasn't definitive because we couldn't do a diagnostic test, but in the midst of a pandemic, when the vast majority of respiratory viruses that were circulating were the novel coronavirus, I think it made sense to consider those as probable cases because we we were really operating kind of in a crisis without the ability to test the majority of people early on. And we were actually actively discouraging people with mild symptoms from getting tested. Okay. So if someone was diagnosed with a probable case of COVID-19, would their information not be input as like a solid yes, like you were saying earlier, um, for the voluntary uh, information? Most state health departments have different categories. So you would likely have a category of confirmed or probable, and it would be reported as a probable. Okay, thank you. So one of the challenges in working with public health data is that the source of data collection might not always be consistent. And I'm guessing when we're collecting data from all around the world into one dashboard, this is also a challenge we face. Would you say there's a big difference in how each country counts their COVID cases? For example, I remember reading somewhere that Germany was counting deaths in care homes only if people have been tested positive for the virus, but Belgium was including all suspected cases. Could you tell us a little bit more about what are the different ways COVID cases are being counted and how public health experts deal with this difference? Yeah, so that is something you have to keep in mind when you're looking at any, any data. What, how, what is the denominator? How are they defining cases? How are they defining deaths? All of that is really important when you're looking at numbers. So it's hard sometimes to make comparisons without actually delving into the way that the numbers are derived. So one thing that's interesting for that, that comes to mind is that China for a long time was not counting asymptomatic infections as part of their cases, whereas in the United States, we were counting them. So when you saw these very, very low numbers of China that were going on and people were like, why is China have no cases? Remember that they're not they're not counting anybody that has asym- that's asymptomatic. So you had to have symptoms to be counted in their official numbers. So that's one example that, that, that comes to mind. But this is very normal to happen, that there's not standard reporting, and it takes some time for the dust to settle to be able to marry up what the way that the statistics look in one country versus another. Okay, thank you. So to bring it back home to Baltimore, how have the case counts reported in Baltimore been tallied by public health officials? Like, is it different in Maryland or in Baltimore compared to other states and cities? Not particularly. I, you know, I don't have firsthand information because I don't work at the health department, but not, not to my knowledge. I think that Maryland is pretty standard. Most states are pretty standard. They kind of follow. There's an organization called the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists, CSTE, which publishes a lot of criteria that most states, for the, for the most part, adhere to. So in general, I think everything is, is fairly homogenous. There may be some slight variations that occur, but most people kind of stick to the CSTE Again, I don't have firsthand knowledge of, of what Baltimore, Maryland does because I'm not directly involved in that. And I actually live in Pennsylvania too. So that makes it a little bit different as well. Okay. Thank you. Emily, do you have any um, other questions you have about the statistics? I think that's all. So maybe we can move on to the JHU dashboard. And one of the questions we got from our listeners here in Baltimore is why is the Johns Hopkins COVID-19 map so highly regarded and used? Are we the only one who are working on a map like this? Or is the Johns Hopkins COVID map special in any way? 
I would think that the Johns Hopkins COVID map was one of the first to be published and be publicly available and really put in a lot of effort and time to make sure the data was accurate and that the data was coming from reliable sources and to make it easily accessible to a general user. And, and, and it's also the fact that the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is one of the premier public health agencies in the world or public health centers in the world. So that there's that recognition of the expertise of Johns Hopkins. And then the fact that this was available at a, at a time when people were starved for data made it the go-to place. And I think that's likely why it's remained a valuable resource for people all around the world. Thank you. The next question is, what do you think that the Johns Hopkins COVID map team can do to improve upon their current map moving forward? I think it's a pretty good map. And I, again, I'm not part of that, that team. I'm a user of the map, a customer of the map. And I think it works pretty good for all of my needs of un- being able to look at different countries, different state levels and different, different metrics. I think, you know, you always want it to be faster. You always want it to be quicker. You always want it to be more user friendly. But I have really no complaints about the Hopkins map as, as a user, just like everybody else is of it. I think, you know, having it be able to be accessed on a mobile phone very easily would be really good on an app for the map would be interesting as well, but this is just very minor types of uh, improvements I think could be made. I think it it really serves its purpose very, very well. And it's become kind of the go-to site for the world and not just the map, but also the COVID testing, the the COVID testing site that Hopkins has put in place. All of that has really become really go-to resources for anybody that's interested in this pandemic. And I think it's um, made it much easier to understand what's going on. That's really great to hear. We saw that they've started to include some vaccination data. Do you think maybe they could also start tracking numbers of different variants of COVID-19? Is that something that's possible to do right now? I do think it's, it is something that is possible, but you have to remember in the United States, the variants are not something that are systematically tested for. So whatever number that we see of the variants, they're likely just to drop, drop in the bucket of how many cases are caused by the variants. So the data would be incomplete no matter who does it, because we just don't have the sequencing power. However, I do think that this is something people are interested in. I think it's going to be important to keep an eye on. And I think that this is something that would logically fit under that, you know, under the mission of what that map has been doing since the beginning of the pandemic. Thank you. I have one question about the map. Um, So is this first instance in a pandemic where we've had a map like this created by Johns Hopkins, or maybe were there other instances in previous pandemics? Uh, I mean, we have the SARS pandemics in the early 2000s, and then the Ebola pandemic in 2014, 2016, that time window. Yeah, so first I would say that SARS was not a pandemic. Uh, Ebola was not a pandemic. Uh, the last pandemic was the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. Uh, there have only been influenza pandemics in the last 100 years. Uh, so though SARS and, and Ebola were disruptive events. They were not, they did not rise to the level of a, of a pandemic. But there have been maps made of outbreaks all the time. It's a key tool that you use. I would say that the Johns Hopkins map is probably unprecedented in its technical aspects and how much information is available. Most maps are very simple where they just might tell you the number of cases in a given geographic area so that you can look around to understand which parts of a country or which parts of a continent might be in- infected. But maps are all, you know, the epidemiology really got its start with the map, the map that Jon Snow made during a cholera outbreak in uh, in London, where he mapped where cases were in relation to the city. And then they found that that's where this pump handle, this contaminated well was. So maps play a major role in epidemiology. And I think they're just getting better. And I think that the, the COVID-19 Hopkins map is one that kind of broke all precedents in terms of the availability to the general public, as well as all the data that's in there in the real-time updating of it that happens. Right. Thank you. And also, pardon me for the uh, using the wrong word there. Even scientists get confused with all these terms sometimes. So, 
Do you think the current, the Johns Hopkins COVID map, you said that it was unprecedented in its scope and what kinds of information that it can give us. Do you think that it'll be used in the future as sort of a, a scaffold or a foundation for future maps for future public health emergencies? I hope that will be the case because I think it's made it much easier to visualize the data and get situational awareness. So this likely should be something that we want to do for future public health emergencies or even current ones that are still going on. This would be useful for tuberculosis, for malaria, for HIV, for Ebola, for whatever it might be. This type of data visualization really can help people understand what's going on and help guide people's actions and public health responses. Hopefully someone who uh, runs the dashboard will hear this episode and act accordingly. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Dalja, for such a fascinating discussion. To wrap up today's episode, did you have any parting thoughts you want to leave with our listeners? I think it's important to remember that you know many of us have been studying pandemics for some period of time, and we've often been talking to ourselves. And many people thought that this wasn't something that could happen in 2020. Uh, that a pandemic could not be this disruptive. So I think that COVID-19 should be a wake-up call to everybody that you must take pandemic preparedness seriously, that we have to demand that our government come up with programs and solutions so that this never happens again. Because if you look at this pandemic and how bad it's hit the United States, it has been literally government failure after government failure after government failure. And most of it was predictable. Most of it was preventable. And I think it's really important that we demand solutions to this, that, that public health be prioritized, that it be thought of as part of national security, and that it gets out of the cycle of panic and neglect, that it's sustainably funded, that it's resourced enough to be able to deal with the next infectious disease emergency, which will be on the horizon before you know it. Okay, thank you. And in case our listeners want to reach out to you or any questions after hearing this episode, what's a good way to reach you or your group? Um, You can find me on Twitter. It's at Amish AA, A-M-E-S-H-A-A. Thank you so much for coming on to our show. We really appreciate you for doing this. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Simore Podcast. The information surrounding data collection and reporting of COVID-19 case data is confusing and unstandardized, but Dr. Adalja did an excellent job of guiding us through the fundamentals. Here are a couple ideas from the episode that I thought were particularly interesting and important. First, the voluntary reporting of case data does not happen in real time. Often there are lags in reporting or times when large amounts of data are reported all at once. This is a normal part of the process even when we're not experiencing a pandemic. Secondly, although our tools for tracking and treating the virus were limited at the start of the pandemic, we have adapted them over time to become incredibly effective at what they do. And with respect to the COVID-19 dashboard provided by Johns Hopkins, we have developed a tool that is useful, accessible, and potentially applicable to other current and future problems. We hope we were able to answer your questions about COVID-19 case data collection and reporting. If you have more questions for Dr. Adalja, then reach out to him on Twitter. His contact information and links to the organizations he mentioned are included in the show notes. If you like this episode and support what we are doing, please tell your family and friends about us and leave a review on your listening platform. Our next episode will be with the National Aquarium's Laura Banke, who will tell us about the aquarium's conservation projects and what we as community members can do to help. Until next time!